This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellersley.com to learn more. This is the week of Thanksgiving, and I would say that we have maybe more to give thanks for this year than any other year. Isn't that a great way to say it in 2020? Because most people have more to grumble about this year, but I would say all of the challenges that we've faced have reminded us of how good we have it. And so as a result, I think in a strange way, when you go through a trial, it actually makes you more appreciative. You guys remember when the, the Twin Towers fell in New York City? Do you remember how appreciative we were of the families that we had? It's a, it was a weird dynamic that takes place. Tragedy equates to gratefulness. And so as a result, in such a strange year, and I'm not going to try and cover it up and say this is a normal year, this was a totally bizarre year. And yet in the midst of it, there was such grace given to me, to my family, I know to our staff, I know to what happened at Ellerslie, what took place on this campus this past year was profound. I witnessed it front row seat. This is a front row seat, by the way. Front row seat, I watched God move in the lives of men and women in a way that surpassed any year before it. This is 2020. So as a result, I just want to remind us that probably all of us in our own way witness something. The devil wants to get us down in the dumps. He wants to get us sucking our thumb and get us into the fetal position so that we are useless as the church of Jesus Christ. Let's not buy it. Let's stand, let's stand tall and strong. And instead of having feeble knees, let's change those out for strong ones. Let's lift our chin heavenward to see that our king is enthroned on high and all things are beneath his feet. I've been going through a series. If you followed the whole fall uh, here on Sunday mornings, you would have noticed I keep on having something to do with nations. Everything is to do with nations. We had the spiritual biography of a nation that we went through. I don't know if that was in the summer too, but it's been a while. And I was going through the heritage of what we have uniquely in this country that is being directly attacked uh, right now. And then I went through something called the rise of the shadow nation, which was going through Deuteronomy to see how God forms a nation. Extremely interesting powerful. And this one has been called the rescue of a nation. And because what I see is a nation in a crisis, nation in a duress position where in a sense it doesn't even know how to save itself, where human power is unable to pull it out. Because ironically, it doesn't matter who becomes president in our country right now, we have crisis. I mean, severe crisis. We have such a sharp split ideologically in this country that I've never seen before. Okay, I've seen a two-party system my entire life, so it's, not, it's never a shock that there are two different vantage points on everything. But there is no agreement points anymore. There's no overlaps. You know, we used to be able to agree that, well, we all want to protect America. <laughs> we can't even agree on that. I mean, it is to the point of so odd and so weird that it forces us as the church to recognize something. I think we need divine intervention. This is also the point where some of us are thinking in the book of Revelation where think of hmm, some character that comes in and brings peace uh, that isn't from God, right? He's known as the Antichrist. You, know, you could definitely see where bubble thoughts would, would form above our head because we are in such a crisis situation. I have a hunger and a desire to see a great harvest come in. Not to see, you know, because most of us have a tendency to think of great persecutions. And however, do you remember the book of Acts? The book of Acts is what we could call a great harvest. And yet, you could look at the book of Acts with two different sets of glasses on. One could be a great harvest. Yeah, Eric just saw it. Well, look at all that God is doing in the world. I mean, he is like turning the world on its head. He's taking 12 men, and look what he's doing. That's amazing. And there's another set of glasses you could put on, and you could see great persecution. You know what that great persecution did? I just want to remind us as the church. 
it caused those 12 to go into all the world and change it. And so as a result, what we have seen historically is that if it is God's design to bring about a persecution, or to allow, maybe I should say, a persecution of the saints of God, we get a smirk on our face. And we recognize, God, is it now time to bring in a great harvest? In other words, we might as well think that way. It doesn't do us any good to get down in the dumps. That's not where God would ever take us. So obviously, it's not God's agenda. Last time I checked, he says, rejoice. And again, I'm going to tell you, rejoice. That's, that's a good quote from Scripture that could be good right about now. Paul said that when he was in prison. And so what we have is a mindset. We need to choose which glasses we put on. I say, let's go after the harvest. So this is how nations are changed. The rescue of a nation, well, it's been repeated multiple times, but Second Chronicles 7.14 is going to talk about God's people humbling themselves, praying and seeking his face, and turning from their wicked ways. Then God heals. Okay, so we have a global pattern there already, but this isn't just in 2 Chronicles 7.14. This is, all, I mean, even in 2 Chronicles itself, it is going to model that multiple times. I gave the illustration of Manasseh, King Manasseh, who's going to actually remember that statement and do it. He, is, he was a wicked king. He is going to humble himself. He was taken into captivity. This guy's done for. He's going to humble himself, pray and seek God's face and repent, and his kingdom is going to be restored. Okay, that's a pretty encouraging uh, picture, especially when you see Manasseh. I mean, that guy was bad. Well, so is America right now. There's a lot of wickedness in this country. Is there any hope? Well, God has given us his word, and his word goes into this, not just at the individual level, but at the corporate national level. Multiple times he shows it. And so as a result, that's why I am building this series, is to show sort of God's mindset towards these things. So the first message. Well, this, I don't even know that I gave the title, and I, my titles are very, very important. The Willingness to Die. That's quite an intense title, don't you think? So the first message in this series was called The Plot Twist, and what I would say is first a nation must have a stirring of faith, impossible odds, and then one man, a group of people stand up and believe, and the entire storyline twists and shifts. It's like, whoa. I mean, you guys do remember that Moses and the entire Israelite company were backed up to the Red Sea. You do know that there were mountains on both sides and they had the most powerful military force coming against them. I mean, you stop the story right there and it's absolute devastation. If any of us were just to continue the storyline, as it would work in the natural realm, you would have a whole bunch of people back in slavery or you would have a bunch of people dead at the hands of the evil Egyptians. Which one of you is expecting the waters to part and the Israelite, an entire nation, to walk across on dry land and then the evil empire to follow them into the water and get swallowed up? First of all, what you're thinking is don't follow. No, don't, you may not want to go in there, but uh, hey, you know what? God, God has them right where he wants them. Who expected that? That's the storyline of the Bible right there. God is the one holding the pen not the enemy. The enemy's been up to no good from the beginning. That doesn't mean he gets away with everything he's up to, especially when one man, in that story, you have one man that rises up in faith. One. That should give us a little hope too. I mean, you have uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer. The Philistines are so numerous, they're like the sands of the seashore, it says, and there's two sets of weapons in all of Israel. Saul has one and then Jonathan has one set. How in the world are you going to win? And, and Saul is, he's despairing. And Jonathan is not despairing. He tells his armor bearer, let's go get him. And God makes a statement in the midst of that, in and through his word, that he doesn't mind saving by many or by few. So as a result, that should hearten us in this time. Because I know, I'm convinced that there are a lot of Christians praying right now. I'm convinced of it. But it really doesn't matter. It doesn't hinge on that. Like, oh God, do you have 100,000 churches praying right now? It doesn't matter. It matters if we stand our ground and believe. That's our job. Our job isn't to count and to number our troops and to say, God, do you have enough out here? He's enough. And that's our confidence. So 
that's where it starts. It starts with what I call the plot twist. This is how a nation is rescued. The next one was the counterpunch or the patience, a mature boxer. I, I've never been a boxer, by the way, but you know, I've studied these things, right? Uh, the mature boxer is wise. He doesn't waste all of his energy just throwing a whole bunch of punches. He actually lets the other guy throw all the punches, and he studies him the whole time. And then he's learning his weaknesses, and then he'll feign weakness in a certain way. Like he'll lower his glove on the left side and sort of go, you know what, I got a, right, I got a spot right here on my cheekbone that you may want to try and hit. And then the young guy's like, ah, I see that, that spot on your cheekbone, and he throws his blow, and right at that moment, the seasoned boxer goes, gotcha, and gives what's called the counterpunch. God is the seasoned boxer. And though it seems like the enemy is so aggressive right now that he's getting all the blows in, are you sure about that? Because God sees his weaknesses and he knows the exact moment to hit. So that's the patience. The intelligent vow, which I would call the wisdom. Last week we studied Hannah and Hannah's vow that we're going to see Hannah in a desperate situation. She is barren. She can't have children. And Peninnah, her rival, the scriptures actually call her her rival, which is an interesting statement, is just boasting and gloating. You felt a little of that? And as a result, Hannah is in anguish, which turns her to prayer. And as a result, she is going to, in the midst of this prayer, vow a vow, which is different than just a request. It's basically saying, God, if I get a child, I will give that child to you. Now, to me, this is the application of wisdom. If we recognize what we are losing right now as the church of Jesus Christ, because most of us, you know, people will try and shame us to say, you haven't had it so easy. It's probably good for you that you live under persecution for a while. And for us as Christians, you have to admit, it does seem like everyone that's persecuted is a lot healthier spiritually than we are here. And I'm not going to argue that. However, I am a firm believer that you don't have to have the powers of darkness ruling over you to be spiritually healthy. Which means that if we were given another season to reach what I call the 300 chairs instead of the one chair, a persecuted nation can reach their one share. But we have access to reach 300, but we're not doing it. If God gave us another season, how would we apply our hearts unto wisdom? Would we utilize it? And that's where the vow comes in. Lord Jesus, if you choose to give me another season, if you choose to give us another season, if you choose to give Ellerslie another season, how would we use it? And in many ways, I feel like we should make that decision now in the hardest moment than when it gets easy again. Have you ever noticed that when things get easy, your, your commitments have a tendency to get diluted a little? It's like, well, you know, I was thinking that back then, but that was then, this is now. When you, I've oftentimes said this, when you're on the Mount of Transfiguration, you do your dealing with God. When you're seeing clearly, you, deal, you do your dealing with God. You don't wait till you go down into the valley and you have that demoniac going crazy because that's when the cloud is all around. You can't see a thing in that valley. And as a result, you need to remember the transfigured Christ. You need to remember that he deserves everything. And he spoke to you clearly. You saw who he was. Now reason from that, even though you're in a cloud bank down here. My God rules all. This demon is nothing next to him. We need to apply our hearts unto wisdom now. Let us tactically move forward based on what we know to be true right now. So then that leads us to this. These are all the things I would say the rescuing of a nation, the faith, the patience, the wisdom, the sacrifice. Our nation, you know, I've spent a lot of time in World War I and World War II. I've actually used to teach the Civil War, so technically I, I've covered a lot of ground. I haven't spent a lot of time in the Vietnam War, I must uh, admit that, and there's other wars uh, that I haven't spent time in. But in so doing, it's interesting, but you see this issue of sacrifice so up front. It's like those people are like giving up their life, and there's so many situations in war where you see men willingly, and, and women, willingly die for the others around them and for their nation, for something that they believe in. It's very intriguing. Sometimes, like if you were in the communist state uh, and you have, what was it, uh, Order 
210, I forgot what the, the number was, where Stalin says, if you back up, if you retreat, uh, your officers are required to shoot you. Yeah, your motivation for dying <laughs> might be different, right? But it is inspiring when you see it. And that's, of course, the classic illustration of sacrifice on a national level. So we'll call that the soldier, the classic picture of sacrifice. How are we going to save this nation? Well, each of us says, I'm willing to lay down my life. Now, it's hard because say you lay down your life, that means you don't get to participate in the rescue of the nation. You, yeah, I mean, you do, but you don't get to share in the fruits of it. You see, as a Christian, we recognize that our life here is not our own and that we are spendable for Jesus Christ, which means we are open and available for God to spend us so that others could live. What does that sound like? That sounds like the cross. That's what Jesus chose to do. And men throughout history, and I'm not diminishing the fact that there are women in military, I'm just saying that classically throughout history it was mainly men, and they made a decision. They made a, a decision to say, I am willing to lay down my life that my family could live, that they would be preserved, that their posterity could live in freedom and not under tyranny. Most of us in here have never lived under tyranny, so we don't know exactly what we have. We don't know its value. However, in studying tyrannical rule, all I can say is, God, please, spare us of that. Spare my family of that. Well, Eric, what would you be willing to do to see your family spared from that? Huh. God, are you like asking me like a specific question here is just sort of a general concept would I be willing to lay down my life that my family could have liberty? So that's an interesting thought because throughout American history, this has been the reason. The Revolutionary War is based on that exact premise. And so, I mean, we may disagree on how America should have navigated through that. Did they put too much value on liberty? I mean, why, why do we spend people's blood for, for this? Is it really worth it? I mean, those are key questions, especially in a time like this. So in studying uh, the history of the movement of missions in Africa, you see this movement of Islam, uh, and it was going down through Africa, and you see this line that is oftentimes called the bloodline in Africa, where missionaries actually went up and laid down their lives. It's a whole bunch of martyrs' blood along this one line, and Islam did not continue further into Africa. And I've had my, have the thought so many times, would I be willing to be one that would, for the sake of Southern Africa being able to hear the gospel, would I be willing to raise my hand and say, God, you can spend me? Uh, it's, it's challenging, guys. I'm just gonna be honest with you. We didn't grow up with the picture. Like our dads are not usually the ones that died laying down their lives for something they believed in. They may have stood for something they believed in, but likely didn't die. Our culture hasn't been around that, where our dad fought in World War I and now we're being called to fight in World War II 20 years later. We, we don't have that dynamic. Back before World War I, there was a romance to war even, where it was like every young boy wanted to grow up and be a soldier. And if they had the opportunity to go to war, it was the greatest opportunity. And all the girls would love you. I mean, a man in uniform, that's like the ultimate thing to be. And so, I mean, you, you, change, you take that mentality, we've lost it today, to the point where we just look at sacrifice as totally unreasonable. Why would I do that? And as a result, we shortchange the value of what we have. Is, I remember hearing this one statement, if by the age of 30 you don't have anything in your life you're willing to die for, then you don't really have anything worth living for. And I was you know, like 20 when I heard that. And I was like, what? Okay, let me, let me think that through. If by the age of 30 you, and you, you don't have anything in your life you're willing to die for, then you don't really have anything worth living for. Whether or not that's true, it got me thinking. Okay, it's not just some biblical statement there. And yet, there's something to it. I, have, I, Eric Ludi, have something in my life I'm willing to die for. In fact, I have quite a few things I'm willing to die for. When you start opening me up, it's like, yeah, I'd die for that. Yeah, I'd die for that. Yeah, I'd die for that. It actually helps us to understand because what we're doing is we're placing value on something at a very high level. 
There's a lot of people in this world that would not die for anything. They would self-preserve their life at all costs. And so as a result, what we as Christians are noted for throughout history is that we are ready and willing to die. And it is shocking to an onlooking world. All you have to do is declare that Caesar is Lord. And you could spare your life. Spare my life? My life belongs to him. He gave his life to me. Here it is, Lord Jesus. There is no way I'm going to denounce your name and declare that Caesar is Lord when he's not. Jesus is Lord. And this phenomenon throughout history has shocked the nations. This is what I would say is what is required of us right now. This is the movement in our soul that we crave. Because all of us, we could have the faith in God. We could have that patience to know that God has the enemy right where he wants him. He's going to win this. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. I know it. I know he's going to get away with this. I know he's going to pull it off. And then we could even say, God, here I am. I'm willing to go after those 300 chairs. And then there's this one more step that I think is critical for, for me and for you and for anyone else who wants to listen in on this. And that is, and Lord, to reach those 300 chairs, or even one, if that's all I'm given access to, you can take my life to do it. I'm all in. This is not with any self-preserving caveat and disclaimer. God, I will serve you and I will do this as long as it's easy. God, I will do this for you as long as my popularity rating stays high. God, I will do this for you as long as I have no pain in the process, as long as everyone still likes me. There's no disclaimer. God, if you give me access to 300 chairs, you can have my life to reach them. Whew. The Moravian missionaries, it seems like I mentioned this earlier in this series, but it just so fits with this. If there's some island, uh, and I don't even remember where the island was, uh, but there was an island, and it was a slave island. The, the man who owned the island had a whole bunch of slaves on the island, and he hated Christ. And so as a result, he would allow no missionaries in to reach these slaves with the gospel. So the only way that these Moravian missionaries could reach these slaves on this island who had never heard of the love of Jesus and the hope of Jesus was to become slaves themselves. And so these Moravian missionaries indentured themselves, became slaves to this island owner, and headed off, basically giving up their life. They were now owned by someone else so that they could reach the slaves on this island with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they were floating away in the distance, as the story goes, and they're getting smaller and smaller, one of the missionaries raises his fist into the air and shouts these words. Is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? When we hear a story like that, I don't know if you're like me, but you have to ask the question, would I be willing to become a slave for life to go to that island? I mean, we, we honor it, we admire it, we think it's amazing, but the level of givenness is beyond what most of us think is appropriate. And I think that's where our flaw is. Where did we come up with the term appropriate? Appropriate sacrifice, appropriate level of givenness. Who came up with that standard? I guarantee you, if you read scripture, you're going to see that there is no limit to what we are to give to Jesus. He didn't put a limit on what he gave to us. All limitations get thrown out. And we say, Lord, you have me in total. What you desire, you get. So the drama at Jason's Deli, it's funny because in the Ludi family, if I were to say this, uh, you wouldn't know which drama. You'd say, which, which drama are we talking about? My brother uh, was driving a, a Suburban, and this is in the days when if you drove a big SUV, you know, it was very... Uh, frowned upon. You guys remember that where it was actually politically incorrect? I don't, we haven't heard about that for a while. I'm sure there's still people that care about that, but that was like a big deal at the time. So my, my brother, <laughs> it was in front of Jason's deli and I think his wife had gone in to buy something and he's like sitting there with his arm out the, the, the window and he has the car running and some guy drives by uh, with a Coke in his hand and goes, <laughs> and my brother, 
and he is splattered. So that was one of the dramas of Jason's Deli. That's not the one I'm talking about, even though I find that very funny. Uh, <clears throat> so this was in my imagination. I remember I was processing through something. Leslie and I were on a getaway, and I remember there was a Jason's Deli on the corner. And I was, you know, we were taking walks by that Jason's Deli, and I was just sort of processing through this idea of the willingness to die, the readiness to die for what I believe. And so this is the drama at Jason's Deli. It actually never happened, but in my imagination it did. I, I played this out multiple times. And that is that I'm in Jason's Deli, minding my own business, eating a sandwich, okay, at one of those tables. And then suddenly a bad guy comes in, and maybe a whole bunch of bad guys come in, and they have machine guns, and they start shooting them into the ceiling, and pieces of ceiling are falling all over the place, and they're yelling. And, uh, and it's just like terror strikes Jason's Deli, and everyone is jumping under their, their table trying to hide from this, right? I mean, it's just shock and terror. And they grab a lady from, from the crowd, from one of the tables, and, you know, put, put her in one of those uh, death grips and put a gun to her head. And then they say, get so-and-so on the phone. And then they're, they're calling someone up and say, we have a hostage and we will kill her if we don't get our demands in, you know, <laughs> minutes. Okay, you guys got the scene here? This is a bad scene. This is a, a terrible scene. But I'm there. I'm in this Jason's Deli. So the question is, what should Eric do? Should I jump under a table and scream? Is that what Eric should do? I mean, believe me, I've thought this through because our instinct, humanly speaking, is to self-preserve. However, could you imagine if all the ceiling is falling? This is just, this is my wish, okay? That Eric would have this inside of him. The ceiling is falling, people are screaming, these guys are going through, and I take one more bite out of my sandwich and carefully set it down and look over... <laughs> with a calm disposition towards this nonsense over here. And they take the lady, and I stand up. And I brush off some of the crumbs, you know, because Jason's Deli can leave a, a few crumbs on your shirt. And I look over there and goes, get down, or I'll kill her. And I say, take me instead. See, I mean, you guys are feeling it too. I mean, this is a great moment, right? This is what we are built to do. And the guy is so afraid of the fact that I'm fearless that he does want to take me, and so he gets rid of, he puts me in the headlock. And now I'm in a great position to minister the gospel. And so he's telling me that he's going to kill me. I'm like, hey, you know, you know, I'm not really concerned about myself. I'm concerned more about you. What's going on that's causing you to behave this way? Have you ever heard about Jesus Christ and his love for you? Okay, now that's my dream. Okay, we all know that sometimes the dream and where we're at in reality, there's a discrepancy between them. However, here's my question for all of us. Do we believe that God built us to jump under tables and to scream for our life and to hide and to just hope that if he's going to kill someone, it's the lady he has over there and not us? Self-preservation is the essence of sin, self-glory, self-comfort, self-care. This is what sin is made of. God sets us free from that. To do what? To care for others, to care for his glory. I'm a believer that the scene I described for you, whether or not it would play out that exact way, and whether or not I would feel a jolt of shock or fear, try and at least knock. I mean, the, the story is very impressive with how Eric handled it, okay? I mean, so what, what I want is some rumor to go, start going around. Did you hear about Eric and Jason's deli? Uh, no, I don't actually want that to happen. Uh, however, I believe that God supplies something for us to act and to behave completely different than the way we are pre-programmed when we come to this earth, when we pop out of our mother's womb. I believe that God does something inside of a believer that transforms us so that we think and reason, respond, speak different than the world around us, which enables us to shock the world. This difference is what I'm interested in right now. I'm not interested in the way the rest of the world is behaving. Well, that's well documented, how the rest of the world is behaving right now. Conservatives are behaving very similar to liberals. We could say, well, but the liberals are lying, and the conservatives still want the liberals dead, though. In other words, we have a death wish both ways. We see civil war ideologically, but people really would, if they had the license to kill, they would use it right now, to kill their ideological opponents. We as Christians are different. 
and I desire to have whatever that difference is on the gauge between that low-level behavior, that animalistic behavior, that self-preserving behavior, and that heavenly behavior, that difference is what I want to see in us, which leads us to have a willingness to die, which is what rescues this nation. If Eric Glutey is willing to step forward with a willingness to give up my life, imagine the impact that that could have upon the world around me, the ripple effect that that could have. I am not afraid to speak truth, but you do know you could be thrown into prison for speaking truth, Eric. I do. That would be really fun to have a ministry in, in a prison. In other words, where you immediately Pollyann twist it, Pollyanna. You have a positive outlook on everything that could possibly happen, but that means they could kill you. Oh, I get to go to heaven. I get to be in the presence of my Lord. Now, the reason we have hesitations, I could tell you reasons why I have hesitations, and that is because I have a wife and children, and I have a family that I deeply care about in a ministry sense, and I feel an ache and a burden every time I think of giving up my life too quickly and having it snuffed out and having that weight, boom, land on them. But you have to recognize this is the classic play of the enemy. I have to trust as a believer that God knows how to spend me. And if he asks for my life, he will grant grace to my wife and children. That is super abundance. That will meet the need. That is hard though, as a man. Very hard. So that was the drama at Jason's Deli. Romans 5, 18 through 19, we're going to see a man stand up and lay down his life to save a nation. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Accursed, accursed, there's different ways of pronouncing that. Not a friendly word, and I think one of those words that most of us are just like, eh, I didn't see that word. Let's just keep moving on. None of us want this. Okay, look at the definition. Doomed to destruction or misery, detestable, execrable, wicked, malignant in the extreme. Mm -hmm. Now, what is shocking about this word is it's basically the epitome of sin. This is what sin leads to. The concept amongst the, the Jews was that if anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed, okay, that's, I think I even have that scripture here, Deuteronomy 21, 23, he who is hanged, and the concept is on a tree, even in the context, is accursed of God. And of course, we see uh, Galatians three thirteen says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The reason is, someone who's hanging on a tree is rejected from both realms. That means they have sinned on earth and they are rejected of earth. They are not fitting for this earth, but they're rejected in heaven also. So they're not fit for heaven. So they hang between the two zones in the most miserable condition, which is interesting because that's what the cross is going to symbolize. That is literally the picture right there. And you know, it's one thing for us to be willing to die. It's a whole other thing of what we see Jesus Christ doing. Willing to become accursed for us, that I could become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Accursed. So this is interesting. If it's speaking of an animal preparing to be slain, which most of us don't think of that because we don't sacrifice animals. This isn't a normal function for any of us. But if you were a lamb and you were going to be sacrificed, you'd be accursed. So this is the accursed lamb. I know we, we don't think about that, but it's the most miserable of creatures right there. Out of all the creatures, this one got chosen. Why? Because he was pure and without blemish and without fault. I mean, what? That's, that's unfair. That's unjust. It is a creature without hope in this world doomed to destruction. So I'm just giving you a, a pattern here that we're going to see modeled, yes, at the cross, but it's also a pattern of righteousness. It's a pattern of heavenly thought that the one who is pure actually is willing to be sacrificed so that others could have life, 
And so we see it in a lamb, and then Jesus is going to become that lamb. And in a sense, we are sent out as sheep. God, could you give a different illustration of what we are? We don't want to be the sort that gets sacrificed, that become food for others, and yet that's exactly what we are. We are built for, for sacrifice. Jesus, willing to become the lamb accursed. Of course, I should have capitalized the lamb uh, in there, but that's what he was willing to be. He was willing to be like one of those lambs that was accursed. Moses, this is an, an odd uh, thing to just remember back to, but Moses was in a sense willing to be the lamb accursed for his nation. This is like literally we're seeing nations shift in history because a man will stand up on behalf of a people and basically say, God, take me. Exodus 32, 31 through 32, then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Uh, wow. I mean, I'm still struggling with gradient one of saying, God, I'm willing to die. And what you see Moses doing is, of course, you could say he's appealing to God's character. He knows how God works. He knows his mercy is greater than his judgment. Um, you know, but still, I don't know that I could get those words to easily come out of my mouth. That's a really hard phrase to state. Paul, willing to become the lamb accursed. Romans 9.3, this is Paul speaking. I, wish, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who were Israelites. That Israel would live. I am willing to be accursed. That's this whole other level of willingness that I think falls into a foreign territory for our comprehension. We haven't witnessed this type of givenness. But what I'm saying is the difference that is made between where we're at when we pop out of our mother's womb and where God wants to take us, God makes up that difference so that we actually feel this burden. God, I am willing to suffer harm in my life. I am willing to suffer shame. I am willing to hang naked before a mocking crowd that others could find life. This is a heavenly thought pattern, which, by the way, will not be found in your own pockets. This comes from heaven, and it needs to invade us, and it needs to renew our minds and change our thinking, change our thought processes, so that we no longer behave as this earth, but we behave as heaven. The man, so that's speaking of us that are guys in here. The man, willing to become the lamb accursed. I would say historically the role of the man is that he is willing to go through extreme difficulties that others could live. I remember uh, Josh Kinnebrew and I were driving down the road uh, and he said, you should hear this podcast on World War I. And I think, didn't it start, Josh, when he says, go into your backyard and dig a hole and then just sit in it. And when it rains and it turns into mud, try and get comfortable. And the stench of, of death, because there's dead bodies underneath the soil that died two years ago and there's fresh ones there, and it's covered with, lacquered with millions of flies. The most disgusting thing you've ever heard described, right? And if you said to me, Eric, would you be willing to hang out in one of those hell holes? That's what it was, it was a hell hole. It's probably where hell hole came from. Would you be willing to ha hang out in one of those and risk your life? I mean, there's mortar shells blasting all around. And the way it's described, this one guy was trying to describe what it's like to be a soldier in a trench. He's like, imagine a guy, a wicked man with a blindfold on, and he has a long uh, chain with a big, uh, one of those spiked balls on the end. And he can't see where he's swinging it, but he's randomly swinging it. And you're sitting there in a hole, and he's swinging it right near your head every day. And it's like, who wants that? You know, as a man, it's very difficult to say, I will go off to war. I'm willing to do that so that others can live. What Jesus did is the most extreme picture of sacrifice that has ever existed on earth. The high king of heaven, untouched and unstained by sin, is going to become sin for us, is going to become accursed. He's pure, he's faultless. He's holy, 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 and he's going to submit himself 
to be treated with such brutality. Hard to even comprehend, which is why most of us really can't comprehend it. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, I would say it is the most extraordinary meditation you could ever have. You stare at this screen and you see it, but you don't quite understand it. You feel it in a deeper way, and then when it's done, you can't talk for the longest time. And you feel like talking would somehow remove something from that sacrifice, and you don't want to rob from it. You're so moved and shaken by this work of Christ. And I guarantee you, it was far beyond that. What we can only comprehend in and through a a movie doesn't even come close to touching who Christ is and what Christ did. So Richard Wurmbrandt has a a story uh, in one of his books about persecution that I've referenced many times. I'll just give it to us again today. Two Chinese Christians shivered with cold in a cell. Each had a thin blanket. One of the Christians looked to the other and saw how he trembled. The thought came to him, if that were Christ, would you give him your blanket? Of course he would. Immediately he spread the blanket over his shoulder. Now I don't know exactly what's going on inside of you as I'm going through this message. But what I, if I try and stick myself in the story, I want to be the guy shivering in the cold in a prison cell with only a thin blanket. The guy already has a blanket. I have a blanket. It's equal, right? But if that were Christ, if that were Christ next to me, would I give him my blanket? You almost want to say, don't ask me the question. Why, do, why does the question even have to be asked? Couldn't it just be we're fine? Thank you, Lord, for each of us having a blanket. I don't really like the thought, why do we even need to ask the question? Because if that were Christ, what would your answer be? If you had the privilege of being next to Christ in a prison cell, and you had one little thin thing to give, would you be willing to sacrifice your warmth so that he could be warmed? Oh! And yet every single one of us esteems what that young Chinese Christian is doing. Every single one of us is astounded. We are moved. You see, the world changes when Christianity is animated on this earth. When we take the little thin blanket we have and stick it on the shoulders of the one next to us, the world has no ability to describe that. It is supernatural. So let's go through the reasoning of the man. I have been given strength. So this is us as men in here. And I'm not saying a woman can't go through the same reason. I'm just starting with the man. I have been given strength. Why? So I can spend it to rescue others. Why was I given this energy? Why was I given this health? Why was I given my material possession? Why was I given my giftings and abilities? So I could spend them on myself? No, so that I could actually give to others. Why did Jesus have a life in that body? Why did he have that strength? What was his health for? What was it for? So that he could give it. So that he could spend it. I have been given something. I've been pondering a a mental picture for this. It's like all the money I have uh, in dollar bills uh, and it's around my neck in a big bucket. And I walk around town and I have a sign on the bucket that says, take what you need. And what most of us would say, you know what, I'm not feeling too good today. I think I'm gonna stay inside. I don't want all that I have to be accessible to everyone out there because the first thought we have, we just know it, that someone's going to come up and say, oh, I need a lot, and he's going to grab everything, but he doesn't really need it. I don't want to be taken advantage of. I don't want to stick all I possess, all my talent, and all my abilities into a bucket and say, hey, people, have at it. No, I'm going to be a lot more shrewd than that. And yet, as Christians, in essence, this is what we are doing. We were saying, Lord, this is yours. However you want to give it to the world, my answer is yes. Knowing full well I will be taken advantage of, but you are just. Knowing that there will be those that feign or fake a need to take, which by the way, Ellerslie is a, I mean, if we were to go through Ellerslie, how many people have faked need? (laughs) We have them. How many people have taken more than they should have from our staff? Yeah, yeah, it exists. And yet, could you imagine if we closed down because that could happen? 
and we stopped opening up and giving what we possess here at Ellerslie because that could happen. It will happen. The Bible makes it clear, sure that's gonna happen, but that doesn't mean we hinder the givenness. I have been given strength, why? So I can spend it to rescue others. I have been given a trust, why? So I can protect it even with my life. I choose to suffer difficulty, challenge, misery, and even outrage if it were to mean that those entrusted to my care were spared the horrors. In other words, I as a man am willing to go through things so that my wife and my kids would not have to go through them. That is our decision as a man. That is how we function as a man. Now, what's interesting is this is the decision Jesus made. Jesus took upon himself something so that we would not have to wear it. And yet, as a response, we all say, Lord, in a micro, in a smaller version of that, we're like the matchbox car of the big one. But in our matchbox car size, Lord, we want to look like you. And we want to make the decisions you would make. And so, therefore, though my decisions will not take away the sins of the world, my decisions could still spare others from horrors that I'm willing to take on myself, from abuses and outrage that I don't want on them, I will take on me. If someone needs to jump into that trench with the foul smell of death in it and the flies and the rats and the mortar shells, let it be me. We're willing to be the first sufferer so that someone else would be spared the suffering. The foam sword. So Hudson was given a foam sword when he was little. What were you, Hudson, four or maybe three? And he had a foam sword from Walgreens. And uh, then there was little Harper. Uh, she was, I think, two. And uh, she was looking pretty cute. Uh, I'm not saying you're not cute right now, uh, Harper. You still are. But uh, she had uh, her pigtails sticking out. And Hudson was entrusted with a sword. Okay, guys, that's a very, very significant trust for a young boy to get. And you know what he did with it? He clobbered Harper over the head with it. And so I don't know if he remembers it, but I remember it very, very well. I came into the living room and I, I had one of those fatherly squeezes of the shoulder, okay? It's one of those ones that makes it very clear that this was inappropriate. And uh, I said, buddy, daddy entrusted you with strength with that sword. Never use that sword to harm. You use it only to protect there we go, guys. We have been given strength. We've been given the authority of heaven. How do we use it? We use it never to harm, but to protect, to showcase love. So uh, I give three positions. Uh, let, let's put one over here. Remember, this is always the bad position on, on this side of the stage. It's the left side of the stage for me. You're looking at it, it looks right, right? So I'm on the left side of the stage, and we're going to say concentration camp. This is where we all start. We start in a concentration camp and we're being abused by the devil. However, we are going to encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. And it transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son, into the realm of light where we can see, we're set free, chains are gone. And yet we're not set free to a private islands with you know, coconuts falling out of the tree and you know, uh, I'm trying to think of other things that would be very comfortable. Nice, uh, you know, birds tweeting overhead. I, I can't think of all the things that make an island nice. It doesn't sound very pleasant to be stuck on a, an island right now. But it's a great life that we think we should have. Instead, we're actually put into boot camp. What? God, I, God, I thought I was set free from camps. No, you were set free from the concentration camp. But you're still in a camp. It's like we're still a slave, no longer to sin, but to righteousness. And this, this camp, this boot camp, is to whip us into shape. And if any of you have had the Holy Spirit move into your life, you know exactly what I mean. He means business. He has a design. What's he building us for? What is his end game? Look at I have position number three, question mark, question mark, question mark. What's God doing with this thing known as boot camp? Why did he set me free so that I could just be strong? so that I could look good with a gun and everyone could take a picture. And it's like, smile, chink. And it's like, is that the goal? Is to make me look tough? Why am I being built in boot camp? To go back in to the darkest regions of this earth and set the oppressed free. Well, God, that sounds sort of risky. 
You're right. It is. That's why when you're in boot camp, one of the first things you begin to learn is how to lay down your life, how to give up everything. We, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to pick up our cross and follow him. I'm not sure exactly how that translates into the English language uh, for all of us, but that means, all right, I accept death. I'm following you, Lord Jesus. When you are crucified, you don't come off of it alive. You die. And as a result, we need to remember that. If we are going to be the disciples of Jesus Christ, if we're going to be in training with him, he is going to train us to lay down our lives. So position three, we're going back into the concentration camp to set people free. The model for rescuing a nation, here it is, guys. His name is Jesus Christ. The model of the life of Christ is what rescued the nation of Israel, if you want to say it. But you could also say capital I Israel is those that believe. He has set that nation free. That kingdom has been set free because of his life. The great plot twist. The enemy has him right where he wants him. He's scourging him, beating him, sticking a crown of thorns upon his head, hurling insults, mockery. Meanwhile, Jesus, while hanging as a criminal on a cross, crushes the head of the serpent, defeats death, the powers of darkness, the devil, and then rises again triumphant. Boy, that, we didn't see that one coming. Plot twist. Counterpunch. Right when it looks like the devil's got him on the ropes, kaboom, Jesus lays him out. And then we had the vow. In other words, Jesus is giving everything. Jesus is not holding anything back. That all goes to the Father. What the Father desires, he gets. This is the ultimate picture of sacrifice. This is how a nation is rescued. So Jesus Christ, sacrificing everything, choosing pain, rejection, and misery in order to set his people free. The means to do this. So all of this that I'm describing, this rather high calling, I don't know if you feel like it's a high calling, but to me, I have a tendency to feel a little lower on this chart, like down near the human level, than the top of this level as I go through these things. It's like, wow. American Christianity doesn't groom you for this. It's not a very good boot camp. It's all I can say. It doesn't groom you to give up your life. It grooms you to come up with excuses to self-justify. This is our great problem in American Christianity right there because that's not what we're built for. So in a time like this where the church of Jesus Christ is needed, the hour is now. You look around and you're like, hey, church, you ready to get going? This is when we're supposed to sacrifice. This is when we go into action. Right now, let's go. So the means to do this, well, first of all, it's not in your pockets. If you're digging inside of your own will, determination, grits, and gumption, you're not going to find it. That doesn't mean it's not there. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, faithful is he that called you who also will do it. God has called us and he's the one that does it. It's always been the secret of Christianity. It's not what we can muster up. It's what he desires to do when he moves inside of us. Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So how are we gonna do this? We're gonna be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's how this is done. You want to know how to defeat that enemy? How to stand strong? How to sacrificially live? This is something that he needs to do. And Paul enunciates it in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. What was laboring? It was the grace of God that was laboring. In Paul, this is how we function. Without the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit at large functioning, making this his dwelling place, making these his hands, making these his eyes, making this his mouth, I'm going to jump under the table at Jason's deli just as quick as anyone else. But there is a shift that takes place in the life of Eric Ludi to stabilize me so that I don't behave like the world in a time of crisis. You ever seen it where, well, yes, we have. I was going to say, have you ever seen a whole bunch of people line up at a gas station because they hear of some crisis coming and so everyone wants to get gas in their tank. So it literally goes around the block and people start getting in the line 
Not because they have a clue what the reason for the line is, just because they don't want to not get gas if everyone's going to take the gas. The reason I say yes, we've seen this, is we just went through the coronavirus and we saw that there was no uh, toilet paper on the shelves. So yes, we have experienced this, where you suddenly think, I need to get some toilet paper. We're self-preserving immediately. It's our default position as humans. How do we live at the higher level? How does this work? This is a work of grace. God must do the work in us. Practicing the dying. So if we're going to do this well, guys, I think we need to start practicing because most of us are probably not going to be killed today for our faith in Christ. But we need to daily die. So I just have a a list of considerations. These are things that historically Christians have exercised as a part of picking up our cross daily. Giving up sleep, why would you do that? So you could pray. You might be, if you're like me, you have a certain time of night where your body is like goes into sleep mode and you're like, okay, I need to go to sleep. And it's a lot earlier than most people. And so, you know, one of the hardest things for me, because I'm a very disciplined person, so I can get up early the next day, is if someone needs the truth of the gospel and someone needs attention to give up sleep. And for me, it's not giving up sleep in the morning hours, it's giving up sleep in the evening hours. Like, oh, I need to stay awake for this. The point is, are we willing to give up sleep for for Jesus, for those around us. How about giving up food? Boy, that's a tough one when you're an American and lingering near the day of Thanksgiving. In other words, we have cravings, we have needs, we have traditions. And yet fasting is one of the most important exercises a Christian can enter into. Why? Because it's a deliberate statement from this realm to say my strength is not in what I get out of this world. It's what comes from another realm. And so I'm willing to fast to make that clear, that my strength is in heaven. The ability to get this done is not something that can be found in this earth. It is something that is found in another realm. Giving up comforts, giving up privileges, giving up applause, giving up energy. When you are limited in your, in your strength and your energy and you've been working all day, you have a tendency to hoard what remains instead of splurging, giving up Money, usually that's the top of the list in the, in the church uh, of Jesus Christ. Everyone wants to talk about giving up money. That usually means give to the church. <laughs> I'm not saying it that way. I'm saying that our resource, just like wearing it around our neck in a huge, uh, what, what I call a tub or bowl, it says, this is for anyone that needs it. That's more the concept. I'm just saying that we make what we have in every regard of who we are available to God. I remember Jackie Pullinger making the statement that when someone prays, like a poor person or an orphan or a widow or someone in prison prays, they say, God, could you help me? That God then looks to his body and he looks to us and our resource and he says, you. You see, he will answer that prayer, but we have to be willing to give of what we have to serve that need. We can't hoard. We are God's resource. That's the point. How is God gonna answer that prayer? He's gonna take from our strength, our life, our love, our knowledge, and he's gonna bring it over here. Matthew 20, 16, so the last shall be first and the first last. This is the mentality of how we think. The kingdom mindset, the first is the last, the last is the first, the lowest is the highest, the highest is the lowest. The greatest is the least, the least is the greatest. The poor is the priority, the priority is the poor. The inconvenience is a privilege, the privilege is the inconvenience. You imagine thinking that way? This is an inconvenience. Oh, what a privilege. It is such a privilege. You start helping people in need and you will find that it's the greatest inconvenience you'd ever run into in your life and your life would be a lot easier if you just ignored them. The privilege is the inconvenience. This is our privilege as Christians. William Booth. So he's going to take, I think his son Bramwell was around 12, and they're going to go into the east end of London, one of the most miserable places on earth at the time, one of the darkest places on earth at the time. And he's going to take him into a pub, which would be one of the darkest places in the darkest places on earth. And his son is going to be shocked by what he sees. It's like 12 years old. 
and William Booth is training his son for something, and I have been so moved by this statement because it's like, God, how do I do that? Because it's against my grain of how I process things. And he says, Bramwell, these are our people, the people I want you to live for. That's a whole different mindset. Remember how I said, we come out of the womb down here. God wants us to live up here. He takes us into this world. God, God, where are you taking me? God, God, there's dirty things out there. There's dark things out there. Eric, these are our people. This is who I want you to live for. This is who I want you to die for. Eric, do you understand how this works? I think so, God. I'm just a little scared because I grew up in America. I don't care where we grew up. I want the real thing coming back to the church of Jesus Christ. This world that is dying and decaying around us, this is the one God assigned to us. Let's not hate it, let's love it. Let's lay down our life to ensure that they find life. Father, how that needs to unfold, what that looks like, you define. But here we are. Lord, give us the grace that we need. Give us the power. We need the Holy Spirit in us, just as in Acts 4 when it shook the room in which they were in and filled them with the spirit of boldness. Lord, this is what we need. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.